Hello and welcome to episode seven of Cipher Vision, Pattern Risk in Context. Hi Frankie, here we go again, episode seven. I know, it's exciting. I can't believe we're at episode seven already. It's my lucky number and what better luck could I have than to have Dan McCurdy as our guest CEO of RPX. Recognized as one of the world's leading strategists in the field of intellectual property, and an even a more elite gang having recently been appointed to the IAM Hall of Fame. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thanks so much, Nigel. Pleasure to be here. And I don't think Nigel gave you a full introduction in terms of everything that you've done so far in your career. So where I'd like to start for our listeners today is maybe you can give us a view of your journey through IP to date has ended in being CEO of RPX. Well, I'm happy to do it. I'll keep it very brief. I started my career in IBM basically as an intern and quickly moved from that through the company over a period of about 14 years, ending my career as the vice president of life sciences. And in that journey, really by serendipity, I ended up in intellectual property when I was asked to become the manager of technology and intellectual property for IBM Worldwide. I had no idea what it was, but I was always up for challenge. And so over a period of about five years of my IBM career, I spent a lot of time working on the TRIPS negotiation of the Gat Uruguay round, also on many of the other major policies that were going on with respect to IP then, bilateral discussions with China, the NAFTA agreement, and others. And from IBM, I sort of branched off into a corporate development role at Siena, a telecommunications company. I then also was president of intellectual property for Lucent and Bell Laboratories. And then I started a series of sort of entrepreneurial IP-related ventures starting with ThinkFire in 2001 and sort of ending with Allied Security Trust before I joined RPX. What's the North Star, Dan, for all of these different moves? Is there a trajectory or is it serendipity? I think it's some of both. The North Star really, I think, picked up when I was in my policy role at IBM, where to help advance policy initiatives, we became a part of a number of collective organizations that brought companies together to help achieve these common intellectual property objectives. And those worked so well that I think that really became the North Star, where I realized that the collective was much more likely to have significant results than individual companies trying to go it alone. And so if you look at almost everything that I've done since then, it is that bringing companies together to help them resolve intellectual property issues that they face in common. And so now you're at RPX, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that collective spirit manifests itself in terms of what RPX does in the IP ecosystem. It is exactly the demonstration of the collective. So we have approximately 200 companies that are part of what we call our core membership, where it's most of the leading technology companies in the world, plus a number of automotive, uh, financial services, and even energy companies that are part of the RPX membership. And the way it works is very simple. We monitor 
emerging risks that involve patents. And once we identify them, we try and mitigate those risks by intercepting patents or obtaining rights to patents that pose what would otherwise be risk to the membership. And in addition to that, obviously, when there are existing patent-related campaigns that confront some or most of our members, we intervene in those disputes. And through that intervention, we are almost always able to solve the dispute faster, cheaper, and better than individual companies could try and accomplish on their own. We've heard you say this a few times, you know, we are a positive force for a negative right. Could you maybe explain that to the listeners a little bit? Sure. Well, patents are an unusual property. The ownership of a patent does not permit the owner to do anything except stop someone else from using the patented invention. And so by its very nature, it's a negative and confrontational right because, you know, let's face it, most people who, you know, people and companies who infringe or are alleged to infringe intellectual property rights or patent rights, they're completely unaware that they are infringing the right of someone else. And so if the patent owner comes knocking on the door and says, you know, look, either pay us some money or we're going to force you to stop producing your product, that creates a certain amount of emotion. And so the mechanism that we use is basically to act as an intermediary between a collective of potential licensees and the patent owner. And through that intervention, we've become really expert at understanding what the needs are both of patent owners and the requirements are of licensees. And how does that play into when we start to think about MPE and MPE risk? RPX was born in 2008 around the NPE risk problem. And that's a particularly difficult one because even though NPEs are not new phenomena, I mean, let's face it, historically, there was as much litigation, maybe more litigation per capita in America in the 1860s to 1880s as there has been during the sort of peak of the modern NPE era. So patent owners, regardless of whether they're operating companies or non-practicing entities, are not a new phenomena. It's just that they have been a highly controversial phenomena over the last 20 or so years. If you think I'm infringing my patent, then let me show you how your products or services infringe in the other direction. And with NPE, since they don't do anything that is particularly patentable, then there is no possibility of counterclaim. That probably preempts a question I was going to ask. So NPEs, we keep on talking about non-practicing entities. We recently published an article which said the only things certain in the world were death taxes and patent risk, being a somewhat play on a quote by Benjamin Franklin. So patent risk has been around for a long time, but as you just said, Dan, NPE risk hasn't been around forever, probably the 2000s were when it really got going. And so my question was going to be, after all the legislative reform and the case law that has beaten down on this activity by NPEs, you know, how has RPX continued to thrive? Well, there's no question that 
you know, particularly in the period from 2000 and let's say 15 through about 2018, there was a dip, a lull in NPE-related activity. The reasons for that, I guess, almost anyone could speculate on, but we do know that there was, post the America Invents Act, there was a significant period of reflection, I guess is what I would describe it as, by the NPE community. But by 2018, it became clear that there had been a refocusing of the efforts. And we've seen continuing growth in NPE-related activity since then, in part, I think, because of the enormous amount of funding that is available from third-party financiers to enforce patents. And that, as an alternative investment category, is continuing to grow and thrive. And if I were to characterize the current environment, even though I do believe that in 2021, we will see a growth in NPE, if you took out, for example, IP Edge from the statistics that can file hundreds of lawsuits against specific defendants in a year. If we remove the sort of outliers and look at the growth, I still expect that we'll probably see growth of somewhere between six and nine, maybe even 10% in 2021 in the US. But the severity is a bit higher, maybe even a lot higher because there's so much diligence that's being done by the financial community before they invest in the litigation. And Dan, just thinking about that and that change in MPE risk and potentially other changes in patent risk, how do you see organizations managing that risk and I guess eventually mitigating that risk? What sort of strategies do you see them employing? It's not easy to generalize and certainly across industries, it is very different. The energy sector might face very different risks than the pharmaceutical sector, than the semiconductor sector, than the consumer electronics sector, than the automotive sector, and so on and so on. So it's very, very difficult to generalize. I think that the common theme should be that companies remain aware of where potential threats lie. You know, that's largely an information and data related requirement. If someone is doing this on behalf of, you know, a hundred companies, it's a lot cheaper and probably better than if a hundred companies are trying to do it all their own and collect and maintain these kinds of data. And it's obviously important to use excellent tools. We have some of our own, but there's also excellent tools, obviously, like Cypher and many others that companies can employ to do that. So one is awareness. The second is a mechanism to openly communicate, obviously in a very pro-competitive way, but to openly communicate with one another about what some of these risks and strategies are. And Nigel, we're looking at patent risk as a key topic area for a number of our customers at the moment. I mean, would you add anything to what Dan said around how organizations are dealing with patent risk currently? Yeah, I mean, I think my big point would be to focus on the similarities and maybe not get to don't lean too heavily on the differences. Dan must be right. The issues faced by a pharmaceutical company where one patent holds up a substantial portion of the profits is very different to a, a high-tech company that 
where there are thousands or tens of thousands of patterns in play, what we're trying to learn from the risk survey and from the interviews we're doing around that, which we will publish in IAM, is building on Suzanne Harrison's work, who was also a guest on CypherVision, what common framework could be developed to help companies categorize that risk? And Dan's already talked about likelihood and severity. There are some common themes, and I think one of the roadblocks to understanding risk and mitigating risk is sometimes it's all too hard. And I think there may be a difference to go and really listen to what Dan said, saying it's all different, but there are some common themes. And when we talk about patent risk in historical context, Dan, I know you have a particular view that history tells us quite a lot about the things that have been consistent over time. Well, it's true. And I'm going to speak a little bit about this when I give the keynote speech at the IPBC Europe in Dublin. One of the things that I've been studying recently is what is the historical context for patent disputes? It's a bit easier, I have to admit, even though I'm embarrassed to limit the scope of what I'm reading right now to U.S. litigation. The advantage is that the U.S. has much easier mechanisms to collect litigation data than other parts of the world. But what I'm hoping is that some of the insights that I'll speak about will, that other people in other geographies will pick up on it and see if this is a theme that you know, moves across the world. The last half of the 19th century in the U.S. really quite revealing because there were sort of unending major patent wars that were going on from starting about 1840 and just probably for the first decade of the 20th century, both the tactics as well as the number of litigations that were being filed were just extraordinary. And we think that we've got crowded patent dockets today, but it was possible during that period for the Congress to actually grant extensions of patents. So at the end of the patent term, if you were a good lobbyist and you knew how to move through the U.S. Congress, you could get the Congress to agree to an extension of the patent for years, maybe seven years or more, to continue your enforcement campaigns. And so imagine if that were to happen in almost any legislative branch of the government today, where someone who had the ability could just get a an extension by act of Congress or by act of Parliament or whatever they wanted and be able to continue their enforcement activities. So history has a lot to teach. And I think mostly what it has to teach us is that even though things look like they're very dramatic and the environment is tilting one way or the other, this is not a new phenomenon. That's a really interesting perspective in terms of yeah, thinking back to history and what, what it can tell us. I want to move on and maybe ask you what you think the future holds. If we look at the world, there are a few things that I think should be strong clues. One is that the world is getting obviously smaller and smaller. The world is now so rapidly changing that I believe this will have profound implications. And if that is the case, any disputes trade disputes or political disputes as between countries are going to have significant impact on the patent system. And there's going to be a political element that cannot be ignored in terms of how the patent system is operating and therefore how business is being 
conducted uh, around the world. The second thing I would say is we should be very mindful of what are the key threats that face uh, business and societies around the world, because that's going to be a clue as to where new invention will occur. So I think that fortunately, though it's about kind of 50 years later than it should be, people are paying real attention to the environment and to global warming. And I believe that there is enough attention being paid now that you can predict that there will be a lot of invention, a lot of innovation, a lot of patent activity, both around technologies that reduce global warming and also patented inventions around techniques to mitigate the inevitable damage now that global warming will create. Dan, thank you very much for what has been a really broad-ranging conversation. I've now got the enviable task. Well, to be fair, you have the task. I have the right to ask you the question for a key takeaway, the cipher vision from this episode. In the middle of dispute after dispute that seems to be never-ending, we just really have a hard time stepping back to see the big picture. My prediction is there will not be any dramatic shifts with respect to at least patent-related policy. Many of the things that we have envisioned we're going to heal the world from NPEs or do great damage to patent implementers or somehow damage inevitably the rights of patent owners. Almost none of those ever turn out to be true. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It's easy to confuse news with what's new. Patents have been around for over 200 years and have always played an important role in the protection of technology. What is different is the need for greater awareness, for patent risk to be understood as part of the business landscape and not as some esoteric black swan event. Dan, what you describe as a quest and a journey continues to have a significant impact on how patent risk is understood and mitigated. Thank you for joining us today. And on a personal note, I'd like to say how much I value our relationship and working together with the Cypher team and RPX. Thank you for tuning into the Cypher Vision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag CypherVision and share your thoughts on today's episode, Pattern Risk in Context. <laughs>